Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone and welcome back to TVP. This week we're joined by Sean Pash, who you may know as a founder and portfolio manager at Ramor Fund Management here in London, or from his popular content on LinkedIn. From either, you'll know that Sean is not afraid to share his mind through thought-provoking commentary in his signature, slightly cheeky style. Sean is also passionate about value investing, so it was natural for us to grab him on the pod. Sean's investment career began in South Africa in 1997 when he joined Old Mutual as an equity analyst. In 1999, he then joined Decillion Capital as one of its founding members and co-managed the successful Big Rock Fund, a South African-based hedge fund. In 2001, he relocated to London with Decillion to co-manage a US-European hedge fund. He left them in 2003 to join Orbis Investment Advisory before then leaving again to establish Ranmore Fund Management in 2008. In today's episode, Juan and Simon Adler sat down with Sean to discuss the art of communication and building a first-class LinkedIn following, including going toe-to-toe with other thought leaders like Terry Smith, the importance of numbers before narrative, the characteristics of a value manager in today's world, recency bias in today's market and how market participants get financial concepts like diversification wrong, and the future of active and passive. Enjoy. Sean Pash, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Juan, it's, um, it's a delight to be here and thank you for, for the privilege I, and for getting in touch. I was, um, I was not aware of the value perspective and uh, I, after your invitation, I scrolled through your previous guests and I, I feel I'm in the company of greats and I've got lots of podcasting to catch up on. So thank you for, thank you for this and, uh, and, and for actually you know, doing this whole initiative. I think it's really wonderful. You know, we um, I would like to say that our um, our role as investors is the sensible allocation of society's money. And if we do a bad job, then society suffers. And so we should all do what we can to to try and ensure that we are allocating capital sensibly and uh, and you're doing a wonderful job. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you very much for the very kind words. I don't think that anyone has said such kind words at the beginning of the podcast before. So thank you very much for that. For the benefit of our listeners, could you please provide us with a brief summary about your background? Who is Shampash? How did you come to be an investor? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in South Africa, as you can probably tell from my accent, although I've been over here 22 years. And in South Africa, it's interesting in that if you, the people who move into the investment world are typically chartered accountants. And the logic, I guess, there is that if you are going to be disseminating and 
you know, tearing apart income statements and balance sheets and cash flow statements, it helps to have put a few together. Um, so I qualified as a chartered accountant. I went to University of Cape Town, studied business finance, and um, and started at Old Mutual Asset Managers. Was actually involved in a successful hedge fund in South Africa, one of the few early hedge funds. Uh, came over with a very good friend and ex-colleague, Richard Pitt, to the UK um, in 2001. We were running a hedge fund. 2002 was quite a challenging, uh, challenging time. And I then left and, you know, in a short period of time, joined Orbis. And Orbis is, as you'll know, a very successful value manager. And the founder, the late Alan Gray, worked with Peter Lynch at Fidelity in the late 60s. And he went back to uh, South Africa, established Alan Gray Limited in the early 70s, very, very successful, came over and immigrated in sort of late 80s and set up Orbis. And so I spent five years there. And uh, and then left at the beginning of two thousand and eight and established Ranmore. So that's a brief history. But when did you arrive to the UK? Was that when you moved into Orbis? Um, no, a few years before that. So that was in two thousand and one. Okay, so you've been based in the UK for quite a while. For quite a while. And what yeah. was the idea be, be behind Ranmore? Well, I you know wanted to row my own boat. I guess that's the thing. Um, and uh, and so that was, yeah, I mean, you, you, if you are the habit in you, you are, yeah. And I just felt that I really wanted to row my own boat, do things my way. And it's uh, it's been a long, hard road, uh, but I've enjoyed it. And there've been some stressful moments. You know, being an entrepreneur and a value investor you know, can have some challenges. Yeah, um, we can imagine. We can vote for that. You are not the first South African guest that we've had on the show. We also had, I don't know if you know them, but we had here Anthony Ball and Sam Sithole from Value Capital Partners and David Holland as well. I don't know if those names resonate with you. Yes, I know. I know of Anthony Ball. I haven't, I haven't met him. But the interesting thing is, you know, when you start off your career in South Africa, you're typically a generalist. The market's not big enough to just be a retail analyst or a telecoms analyst. You know, there are only one or two companies there or paper analysts. There's only one company or two companies there. So you're typically a generalist. And, and so I was quite fortunate in that I started off in, as a small companies analyst, was quite a generalist. And that gives you perspective when you're looking across, you know, at a bank one day and an industrial or pharmaceutical company. And so, you know, maybe there's an element of that. I mean, there, certainly there are a number of South African investors who run some very successful funds, global funds, and, and perhaps the origins are in the fact that we start our career as a generalist. What has been the most challenging thing of being an entrepreneur? Um, you know, look, you, you're dealing with lots of parts of the business, not just one element. You know, you're dealing with shareholders, you're dealing with um, staff and HR and compliance and all of those things. I mean, along the way, we've, I've been very lucky in assembling a great team. And what I've learned is that it's fundamental to have a team of people who have an amazing attitude. And, uh, and so, you know, if you, uh, so I want a pretty smart person with an amazing attitude. I will take that person over an incredibly smart person with a bad attitude any day of the week. And because life and business is tough enough without managing difficult people. And the problem is sometimes in investing, you have difficult people, but those aren't the people, they're not going to find a place at our organization. 
So it's, but then it's been an exciting place. And actually in managing the business, I've found quite a lot of benefit in terms of looking at how you look at the business and, and various aspects and, and then applying that to the companies that you're looking at and going, well, how are they dealing with these issues? Um, you know, for, and, and actually I'm also involved, you know, in, in terms of outside work, I, well, not outside work, but I'm involved at, at a hockey club. And, and involved in the finance side of the hockey club. And so looking at how they are dealing with, for example, you know, electronic payments and fintech and seeing how competitive that space is has helped me on an, uh, you know, in analyzing those kinds of companies and barriers to entry and those types of things. So, so I think um, you, know, you bring all of those various aspects uh, to the investment table, uh, which I found quite useful. Something that we've asked some other guys in the past is about, especially when they had they were not born in a developed market, is how being born in an emerging market has shaped their views about risk and taking certain risks. Look, I think I mean it's one of the benefits. One is that in developed markets we haven't had inflation for the last forty years. Well, I've grown up with inflation. Well, I, you know, when I started my investment career, it was in an inflationary environment. So, um, so that has that has that benefit. And of course, it was interesting because when I sort of started off, you had companies on eight, nine times earnings. In fact, some companies in South Africa they hadn't changed buyback rules, so you had these really cheap companies. And overseas was sort of you know sixteen, seventeen times or so. That was the norm. And then a few years later, all of a sudden, emerging markets are in teen multiples, and developed markets are on on low multiples at the bottom of you know two thousand and nine. So, I think it does focus the mind in terms of of risk. Okay. Although if you've been investing in the US for, for years, you know, it doesn't take much for a company to miss the earnings or guide lower and all of a sudden there's a 10 or 15% gap the next day. So it's not like investing in uh, developed markets is, is devoid of volatility or, or risk. Very interesting. Yeah. And so tell us how you ended up becoming, you know, the best writer on LinkedIn. Simon, you, you're very kind, but I mean, it's actually, I'd love to say it was a grand strategy, you know, dev devised at an offsite, but, uh, but I'd be lying. It really sort of happened. It just sort of fell into, into place. And I was chatting to a friend of mine trying to work out how I could grow the business with limited means. And he said, well, why don't you try LinkedIn? And, um, but I didn't know much about LinkedIn. And so I found somebody to spend a couple of hours telling me about LinkedIn. And, and the key takeaway I got from this guy was if you want to expand your connection, you know, your con connections, what you want to do is you want to write insightful comments on other people's content, because then that exposes you to their user base. Okay. And then, and so that's what I started doing. But the problem was I wasn't, I never really thought I could write much. In fact, I hated fact sheet, monthly fact sheets. I even considered binning them and, uh, and just going with quarterly fact sheets. But I, I had the good fortune at a dinner of meeting a guy called Scott Keezer. And Scott goes by the name of the writing guy. And I said to Scott over dinner, what do you do? And he says, well, I teach people how to write. And I said, well, but can't everybody write? And he said, well, no, it's the, you know, if you're writing for business, it's a very different skill to writing essays or dissertations. You know, business people have limited time, so every word must count. And, uh, and I thought, wow, there's, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole um, 
I just haven't had exposure to this. And so I did a few courses with Scott and he said, what I do is I help you find your writing voice. Okay. What really resonates with you? And so I started writing and I found for me, it was quite useful in terms of crystallizing my thoughts and, and just in terms of making sure I knew what the story was, because if I was putting across both points, I needed to make sure I really understood what I was saying. And I met a few, you know, I've met a few great people along the way. And it's been a, a great source of learning because when I've written on LinkedIn, quite often you get people who engage with you and then they'll write something and they're very experienced. In fact, when I, I wrote a piece recently on this whole banking crisis and I was discussing some IAS documents and the accounting thereof, and of course accounting has changed a lot since I, uh, I, I qualified many, many years ago. And and the guy who was contributing was was the head of technical accounting at a life insurer. I mean, he you know, he spends all day worrying about this IA statement. So it can be really, it can be a fantastic form of learning. I wrote about you know, hedging of a, an oil and gas company, and next thing I got a, a message from a guy who was involved in oil and gas hedging at some company in the states. And I've actually hired a I hired a member of staff from LinkedIn, and not because they sent me. Can you please hire me? In fact, I just noticed that he was liking my comments early one morning on a Sunday morning at eight o'clock. I just, my wife's a, uh, a pediatrician and I just dropped her at the station to be on call. And uh, and so here was this guy liking my post from 11 months ago. And I thought, who's reading this at eight o'clock for <laughs> 11 months ago? <laughs> and um, I sent him a message and I heard his story and you know he was struggling financially at university. And so we've helped him out and he's now working as an intern. And so it's been a fabulous forum. And I would really encourage, you know, anybody, I think the one interesting thing is get the more you do this, the more you get to know the the LinkedIn algos. And and I'd encourage that anybody who enjoys or finds the LinkedIn articles useful to like if they like it. Because what that does is if somebody else engages with me, okay, and writes a comment, if you've liked it, you will be alerted to the fact that somebody has written a comment. If you don't, you know, chances are that you won't actually be copied in on future posts. So for example, you might follow me, but what happens is when I write an article, LinkedIn doesn't send it to all your followers, it sends it to a sample of followers. And based upon whether those followers, you know, how they respond, they will then expand and send it to more followers. So anyway, I think it's great. I think it's a, it's a superb forum. I think where if you, if you look at Twitter, you know, I've basically stopped writing on Twitter now because you get some guy who you don't know who he is, Darth Vader, you know, 963 writing some chirps from the side. And so so LinkedIn's a much better forum for learning and uh, and growing. So yeah, it's been good. Well, we have very much enjoyed your posts on LinkedIn and we have learned a lot from them. I was just going to say, yeah, it's really interesting. I think, yeah, I you say that you don't think many people need writing lessons. I can guarantee you I need writing lessons. I am not a good writer. Um, but, uh, you know, the way you write is very, very compelling. And, yeah, what you're writing about is, yeah, music to our ears because I, I haven't read one yet, which I disagreed with. So um, great work. No, well, thanks, Simon. I should introduce you to Scott because he's a top guy. I mean, as I said, he he helps you find your writing voice. And I remember reading one of my earlier posts to to my wife. And one of Scott's things is to read what you've written out loud. And uh, and so I read it to her and I said, look, I, I think it's a little tongue in cheek, but, you know, what do you think? Anyway, I was about two sentences in and she said, I think it's flat out sarcastic. So it turns out my writing voice is um, conversationally sarcastic because that's what I try and do, you know, put both sides across and then let the reader 
come to some conclusion. You know, and I just fairly right when I when I feel inspired. We obviously earning season's about to kick off, so it'll quieten down a bit. But there's no shortage of content out there. But no, thank you for those kind words. Is writing still the best way to communicate with your audience? Well, I mean, it is it, it is efficient in that if you write something, you can then steer a few clients. If they're asking questions, as a few did you know, in recent days about the banking crisis, you can say, well, I've written this. Please go and have a look at that. So it's quite efficient in that re regard. Um, it is also efficient from terms of my time because I can write and you know edit, et cetera. It, it, I have started a little YouTube channel, and I've got a few videos on there um, you know, how to break apart a balance sheet, why passive value, I think, is a terrible way to play the value theme. I've tackled a few of those. What's really interesting is people lose concentration quickly. So, and maybe it's just me, but, but you know, you don't want to have YouTube videos longer than five minutes. If somebody sits there and they go, oh, yeah, it's an interesting topic, but I see it's half an hour, forget it. I'm not spending half an hour. So, um, so, so for me, writing works well. I think, as I said, I'm not bothering with Twitter, not doing, haven't done any TikTok videos yet. Of course, my children think I'm I'm not that influential because I haven't got a million TikTok followers. So yeah, but but for me it works well. You closed many of your pieces with the hashtag numbers not narrative. Could you explain to our audience what what exactly do you mean by that and why is that so important? Well, yeah, I think um That really came about uh, one of Joe who who works with us. She said, "Well, you're always writing about numbers, and you're always, you know, contradicting or challenging the narrative. So why don't you why don't you do hashtag numbers not narrative?" Which I thought was a stroke of genius, and uh, and so that's what I've really done. And if you think about us humans, we have we love stories because it has helped us. Yeah, that's how we passed on our learnings, sitting around the fire telling stories. And so we very quick to attach to stories. And 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 you think about some of the some of the stories out there, you know, fast China's growing fast. China's and and you can imagine the imagination goes wild. You got this huge country with a huge population. So yeah, that must be really good for shares. Well, there's no data which suggests the fastest, as we all know, the fastest growing economies produce the best performing stocks. And then you say, well, Indonesia is a big country and Nigeria is a big country and there are lots of populous countries. So that you've got these narratives, another narrative, Europe being a basket case. Well, it'll amaze people late last year that Europe beat North America. Well, the MSCI Europe beat North, MSCI North America late last year, even though there was a war on the continent. And so the narratives are Europe's a basket case, they've got a recession coming, there's an energy crisis, et cetera. And so stay away from European companies. And so that's what I try and challenge. You know, that's the story. Great. Well, what do the numbers tell us? Um, wind, or, you know, you must go for wind because it's ESG friendly. The wind beats solar because the wind blows day and night and it blows more in winter when people are using power. Great. But then if you did that in 2001, you know, Siemens Gamisa is down, what, 70% since then, and Vestas is down 60%. So, so you can attach yourself and spend too much or place too much value on the story. And you, I think you've got to make sure the numbers line up. And, and if, you've got a, if you've got a good narrative and, a good, and the numbers line up, fantastic. You know, onshoring, well, that's a big story. And that's a big growth area. You can find a company where the numbers line up and that you can buy at compelling valuations that can, that can participate in that trend. Great. You could be onto a winner.
So that's what I typically do. And obviously there's some other narratives, quality and growth and passive. And, and, and then at the micro level, you know, last year, or the last couple of years, one of the things that drove me crazy was PayPal in their presentations talking about, are we going to generate so much of free cash flow? And I go, well, where is this free cash flow? Because you're not paying a dividend. You haven't started buying back stock and your debt's going up. So tell me where this free cash flow is going. But that's what they said on page one of their of their presentation. And of course, it was there wasn't free cash flow. They were just playing with the order of the cash flow of the numbers in the cash flow statement is what I'd argue. And if you look at something like Microsoft, I mean, we're not going, none of us will disagree that Microsoft's not a fantastic quality business, amazing business. But but what about the numbers? Because Microsoft earned $9 in the last year and people think it's going to earn 12. Well, that sounds easy. You know, my son earns nine at a, at a restaurant. Yeah, but, it's, but put it into numbers and we're talking about going from 69 billion to 90 billion. People are expecting Microsoft to earn an extra 20 billion and it took them until 2011 to earn 20 billion. And then let's say they do do that. Well, unless it's on 24 times earnings in two years, having earned this extra 20 billion, you know, your return is, is negative. And for us to make a 10% return, well, then it's got to be on 28 and a half times earnings in two years. And it's only spent you know, 12% of its time above 28 and a half times earnings. So is that what you want to bet on? So it's lining up the numbers and the narrative is really what I want to do. And, um, and that's what I've tried to do. Do you think that narratives have become more powerful in markets over the course of the last decade? I think they probably have because of the means of disseminating them. You know, we can now, we have, think about YouTube and TikTok and Twitter and LinkedIn. You know, it's much easier to share stories. People like listening to stories. They don't want to see numbers. It's boring. And so I think that it probably has. You've got all these pundits on, you know, radio programs and you look at the CNBC and Jim Cramer, you know, those are, well, they're always talking about stories, aren't they? And so I think it has. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the challenge, and this is an interesting thing, I, I think the challenge is we all make mistakes, okay? It's not something fund managers like to, to own up to, um, but we do all make mistakes. And, and, if, and the problem is if you're attaching yourself to a narrative, at what point do you know whether you're wrong? If you've said, I'm buying Vestas or Siemens Gamisa because it's exposed to wind and wind is the best, Great, but at what point are you wrong? You know, you're down 70%. If you attach yourself to the numbers and, you know, now you can see whether you're wrong because margins have fallen or, you know, the price multiple's too high or the order backlog has fallen, et cetera. So I think it helps me correct mistakes earlier than if you've clung to a, uh, an idea or a narrative. You think it's, it's interesting that, that you're having a debate as to whether there's more narrative now than there was 10 years ago when 20 years ago there was the biggest narrative bubble stock markets had ever seen and two or three hundred years ago the biggest narrative bubble markets had ever seen with dutch tulips i'm not convinced there's any more narrative chat now than there was before i think that's the center of all bubbles isn't it yeah, that's probably right i mean the the means of disseminating those stories it, it probably it gets out there quicker. Uh, you've yeah. got far more participants. Yeah, interesting. And if we if we go back to your kind of how you became a value investor, do you think have you always been a value investor? Has it developed over time? And yeah, you know, what do you think it takes to be a value investor? Yeah, Simon, that is a great question because no, I haven't. 
In fact, when I started off at Old Mutual Asset Managers way back when, I mean, my first, you know, share that I recommended was a was an IT company called Datatech, and we had a little IT bubble back in South Africa. So, um, and then we had a company called iExchange, which moved over to the states. And so we've had quite a, you know, media and tech was the were the go go areas when I started off. Um, I went over to Montgomery Securities in San Francisco in the late, what was that, 98, I think it was. And they had rock concerts and you listened, got to listen to Qualcomm and all these guys are going to take on the world. And so you could kind of get swept up. But, but obviously when you had, we had the correction, all of a sudden that was the sobering moment. And then you started to say, well, hang on a second. You know, if, if these stories don't play out, I'm looking at substantial downside. Does this does this really make sense? So that's the answer: is that I haven't always been a value investor, but I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty religious about it now. And and when you think about it now, what do you think? Do you think anyone can be a value investor, or do you think there are specific qualities, mindsets that are required? Well, I think I think there I think anybody can be. You know, you can learn to be a value investor. It's harder. You've, there are a couple of things I think you've got to do. I mean, you've got to be inquiring and not fall for stories. Be quite skeptical. I think you've got to be quite skeptical. Um, when I was involved at the hedge fund, I did quite a lot of short selling. That was my area. I was a bit like a Carson Block. I would get in there and stuck into the numbers. And I know, if, you know he's been one of your guests. I'm looking forward to listening to that podcast. I think you do have to be diligent and I think you have to be a level two thinker. And one of the things I often write about is Howard Marks's concept of don't just take things at face value. You know, that's level one thinking. What's level two thinking? Level one thinking is, oh, this European banking crisis, we got, this, is, this is the second one. Well, no, the conditions are very different now to what they were. And, and take it to the next level and inquire, you know, ask yourself whether, um, whether, whether things have changed. So level two thinking is important. I think you need to be open-minded. You know, we all make mistakes and you need to recognize when you have made a mistake and, uh, and when, to, when to cut and run, I guess, is, is a key thing. Um, and you mustn't care too much about what other people think about you. And I think that's the difficult thing. So maybe that's the one, the one challenge that a lot of people are going to have. You know, I, um, I heard this great quote once which said, don't worry what, what people are thinking about you. They're not thinking about you. They're too busy worrying about what people are thinking about them. <laughs> so I, I do think that, um, you know, those are the qualities that you, that you probably need. Um, but there are a few of us. I mean, I was having a look at some performance tables the other day and just our fund in the Morningstar blend equity category. I mean, there's 1,868 funds in the EAA blend category, 535 growth funds in the growth category, 143 in the value category. I mean, that's five and a half percent of that universe. So it has been a really value, though. Do you think? Sorry, Simon. How many of them are really valuable? Well, I think even fewer than that. I think you're quite right. You know, yeah. there are some funds that call themselves even got value in the in the title, and then when you look in the portfolio, you go, "Well, really?" I mean, the S and P 500 value index now has Amazon, I think, at number two, and Microsoft at number one. Yeah, it's a nonsense, isn't it? it and it, yeah. and in terms of dealing with the pressure, which value investing inevitably comes with pressure in the periods of underperformance, any thoughts on on you know how you've coped with that yourself, whilst also running a business? Clearly, what you think 
people that yeah whether you how important you think being able to withstand that pressure is and and, and what your thoughts are around that kind of topic. No, that is very important. And I think what you have to do is have the right clients at the get-go and uh, you know, people who buy into what you do. And so, so if they are just coming to you because of your historic performance, you're in trouble. Okay, they must really understand and say, this is what I think makes sense. And of course it makes sense. It's a, it's a timeless concept. If you're going to go on holiday, you, well, we look for deals. If you, why have Ryanair and EasyJet been successful? It's because people want deals. If you're going to buy a mobile phone, you look at what mobile phone offers there are. So, so why would anybody, if you prepare to look for offers on going on holiday and look for offers when you're buying your mobile phone and car, et cetera, why would you not want to spend your retirement money the same way? spend being invest. And so I think it, it makes fundamental sense. And if you can, I mean, I wrote a piece a while ago about my favorite clients are entrepreneurs and they really are because they don't care about volatility. They, don't, they just want to make sure that you are doing what you said you were going to do, that you are investing wisely and you're making sensible decisions. And, and if you look at entrepreneurs, you know, that's what typically what they've done. What I find fascinating is when you look at, you know, how did most people make their money? They made their money in competitive industries, okay? Whether you're a shopkeeper or a restaurateur or a builder or whatever, these are highly competitive industries or an accountant or a lawyer or whatever, very competitive. And yet, as soon as they get to the market, they only want to all of a sudden invest in the businesses that have got the highest moats and the highest, you know, quality and all that sort of stuff. And yet, that they have made their money in competitive industries. So I think there's, um, yeah, there's a challenge there. But, um, but having the right clients helps you withstand the pressure because you can say, look, this is what I said I was going to do. Don't worry about the fact that we down fire, you know, whatever over the last five days, that's irrelevant. Of course, it's easier said than done. But, but yeah. coming back to the basics and saying, well, have I got this wrong? You know, we, I'm very open-minded. I also, I think it's important to work in an environment where you can make mistakes. So I don't measure our, our analysts, I'm not measuring every single move they make and whether they're recommended and what price and what the market's done and what the stock's done because I want them to be free and liberated. And so I'm only interested in what's happening from this point forward. They might have told me I really like the stock a month ago. If something has fundamentally changed, well, I want to know about it. And, and I'm not going to hold it against you. And so I think we have to liberate ourselves and liberate our employees to, to make the best decision going forward and 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 free them from being anchored and uh, all the rest. So that's my view. Yeah, avoiding anchoring is critical, isn't it? I wonder whether you and I both share another advantage, which is a difficult one for many people to have, which is by both being married to doctors. I ah. found in you know <laughs> March and April 2020, which was an incredibly difficult time as a value investor, you think you've had a very tough day, you get home and, you know, what you speak to your wife about her her day was and, you know, your wife's the paediatrician, they can have some immensely difficult days and suddenly it puts it all in perspective. Do you, do you find that or not? 100%, Simon. And, and actually my wife's a paediatrician in intensive care. So it really does put things into perspective. You know, you have a, you've had a bad day, well, the shares could bounce back tomorrow. If they've lost somebody in their unit, well, that's not coming back. And so that really does put things into perspective. I think you're 100% right. Yeah, difficult for many people to, uh, there's only so many doctors out there, but I would encourage value investors to marry one. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what is the greatest myth about a value investor? 
the greatest myth um, is that they're terrible businesses. Yeah, I think that's the greatest myth. Okay, and and you see that um, are they terrible businesses, and we buy these high quality businesses? Well, that's not true. I mean, we all want high quality, and we all want growing businesses. Um, but at what price are you prepared to pay for it? And and you, you, I've used the example before. You can you might want to buy a BMW convertible. Oh, it's a great car. Great, I want to buy a BMW convertible. Well, when are you going to get the best price? At the beginning of summer, on a Saturday morning, on a sunny day. When you walk into the showroom, you're going to get a good price then? Probably not. Or are you going to get a good price on a Tuesday evening in the middle of winter, close to quarter end, and the salesperson's behind budget? Yeah, that's probably when you're going to get a good price. Okay. The, what's the trick? The trick is you've got to wait six months until summer. <laughs> so so I, I think the idea that you, if you're a value investor, you're buying a rust bucket that's on its last legs. And if you're a growth investor, you're buying Range Rovers uh, is, is misplaced. In one of your latest pieces, you wrote about residency bias and diversification. And finance is one of those jobs where there are many concepts which are easy to rasp theoretically, but very difficult to put in practice. I think that diversification would be another one. So can you explain what was the purpose of your piece? What do you think people are doing wrong and actually what they should be doing forward. Yeah, thanks, Juan. I, I mean, the diversification is interesting because if you look at entrepreneurs, the skills that they needed to get wealthy and the skills you need to stay wealthy are different. And the point I made in that piece was about, you look at Warren Buffett, I mean, you know, he, people often refer to him as having said diversification and that you shouldn't be diversified and you only need a handful of stocks. Well, as he has, Berkshire Hathaway has grown, they've got more and more diversified and that's enabled them to preserve their wealth. And, and I don't know if you've been to Cape Town, but outside Cape Town, there's uh, an apple growing area called Elgin. And when I was growing up, the wealthy people had apple farms in Elgin. Okay? And as they made profits and whatever, what, what, what they'd often do is they'd buy the neighbor's farm. And so they would take those apple profits and bet those apple profits back on another apple farm. And they kept doing that. And eventually you got quite a lot of concentration. And then what happened was that the pink lady became popular. And these apple farmers had only grown Granny Smiths. And all of a sudden they'd spent all their capital buying other farms and didn't have the money to um, you know, plant pink ladies. And, they went, and many went out of business. And so I think if, you, if you've been lucky and you have got wealthy from playing tech or playing quality or playing growth and have ridden this 14 years up, okay, take some of those profits off the table and put them into value because the world has turned upside down. And, and that's what I'd say. And I think people are too loose when they talk about quality compounders. You know, we often hear this in, I mean, our skin you know, curls when... No doubt when you, when you hear quality compounding, you look at something like a Pepsi, you know, it is compounded earnings or pre-tax income, operating income at sort of two and a bit percent of the last 10 years. But the perception is, oh, it's a wonderful quality compounder business. I was actually grown, grown earnings at 2%. I mean, I think I used the example of Procter & Gamble the other day in my article in CityWire where I was challenging Terry Smith and the notion that banks, he would never invest in banks. And I'm going, well, hang on, actually, interestingly, BNP Paribas has grown pre-tax income faster than Procter & Gamble over the last 10 years. Now, until you looked at the numbers, you wouldn't have thought that was true. 
we are going to definitely come back to that piece because I think that that's by far one of our favorites. But before we do that, I think that you need to explain to me what is a pink lady? What is a? Pink lady? Pink lady. It's a variety of apple, which is delicious. <laughs> and <laughs> Simon, you know about a pink lady. It's delicious and it's sweet, whereas a Granny Smith is quite bitter and tart. And so it was not it's difficult to... It's two of our to... fellow colleagues' favorite type of apple. Which one? The pink lady is Charlotte and Roberta's favorite apple. Yeah, it's delicious. <laughs> okay, I have never heard that about that before. <laughs> On the debate between active and passive... Many market participants have been calling the dangers of passive for a very long time, and you actually made a reference to this in one of your pieces as well. Yet nothing seems seems to have changed. What will it take for this train to change? Or do you actually believe that this is the status quo going forward and this is the world that we live in? No, I don't believe it's a status quo. And I think it is going to change and it's going to change fairly soon. And I think it's a real problem. And if ever there was a reason to diversify, this is it. Because if you look at the concentration in US growth and tech, it is hugely concentrated. I mean, the QQQ, two companies, the QQQ is the fifth biggest ETF in the world. Okay. And two companies make up 25% of the QQQ. Microsoft and Apple. And, and if you look at the S&P 500, you know, the 10 companies make up 25% of the company and everybody is in those. And it will end because we all know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I think that the bill for that lunch that we thought was free is going to be paid in the form of terrible absolute returns. Okay. Because everybody is on the one side of the seesaw and the pendulum is going to swing back. And and I think it's it's interesting. You know, when I started Randmore 14 years ago, there was a trillion dollars in passive money. There's now nearly eleven trillion dollars. And and there's only and so in that 14 years, there have been um 10 years of double-digit positive returns and only one year of double-digit negative returns. So people have invested a huge amount of money think and, and taken it away from actives, saying, well, you guys charge fees and you can't beat your benchmark. Okay, well, maybe we, we shouldn't have beaten our benchmark because to beat the benchmark, you would have had to be more crazy than the benchmark. And and actually the benchmark is irrelevant because if we're down 20%, well, you know, how good was it to perform in line with the benchmark being down 19% last year? Can't have been very, you know, so, but of course we bounced back quickly this year. So we will have some double digit down years and then the pain will get to a point where people go, you know what? Um, I didn't sign up for this. Performing in line with a falling benchmark is not attractive. And I think the other thing is, you know, it surprises a lot of people to know that nearly 10% of the shares in issue of the spider, the SPY, trade every day. So, so these passive investors are almost being gamed by active investors. They're using these guys as a, as an instrument to to get their market positioning. So I think there is going to be a problem and the pain's coming. And, and what is going to be the catalyst? Well, if you look at the huge exposure, in the last quarter, year over year, every single large tech, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Meta, operating income fell for every single one of them. Okay, so now these are companies that people are paying 27, 28 times earnings. Operating income, forget EPS, was down in all of these guys, and they're depleting the cash. So Facebook has spent 90 billion over the last three years buying back shares, but the share count's only down 
And Microsoft is spending most of its cash pile on Activision. And Apple's cash pile was 25% of their market cap in 2016 because they had 150 billion in net cash and their market cap was 600. Well, they now only have 69 billion of net cash and their market cap's 1.9 trillion. It's only three and a half percent of their market cap. So they can't defend the market cap with cash and they can't buy back that many shares. And so, so they can't keep this operate, the, the earnings per share going when operating, it's falling at operating income level and then you can't buy back the stock. So all of us, it is going to dawn on people and I think you're going to get hedge funds and family offices saying, you know what, rather than have 70% in North America, let's move 5% to Europe or to Japan. But there's no liquidity because, because the people who sold because we had a war last year. I mean, we're going to sell them those shares. You know, it's it's far less liquid. So if we sell, if if we wanted to take a ten million dollar position, let's say in J.P. Morgan today, I mean, we could do that. Nobody would, none of us, know what the market wouldn't know. If you wanted to buy ten million dollars of Deutsche Bank, you know, you'd have to be careful not to move the price. So when I think when money starts to migrate, it's going to be fireworks, and uh, and then all of a sudden the one year and three years and 10 years. So it's definitely it's definitely going to happen. And I think the smart investors will diversify before it's too late. And in that conversation, you touch on, I think, one of the, well, clearly the most important concept, which is, it's the price you pay that really matters. And I think the article you wrote where you talked about, you know, the return on equity, people get excited because this company's got a high return on equity, but they forget that they're paying 10 times book value so the return on equity that they get is 10% of, of the number that the business is generating. I thought that was an exceptionally astute article and very, very interesting. But why do you think so few people kind of get that? Because without wanting to diminish your article, I don't think it was rocket science. It was just very well put. And, and it seems that people just focus on the return on equity or the returns that the business makes whilst forgetting the, the price they pay. And that doesn't seem to be part of any debate at all. Is that just because we've had a 10-year bull market in quality companies? Or or what, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, Simon, thank you. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who's a fund manager. And he was telling me, I said, what companies do you think are great? And he, he mentioned an industrial company. He said, it's a great business. And I said, oh, I agree. It's a great business. But what's got to go right for us to get a double-digit return? And he goes, sorry? I said, well, what? What have they got to earn and what's the PE multiple got to be for us to get a double digit return? He goes, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. And so that is the point. People stop at that point. And I, I think the, the precursor, I wrote a piece about Pepsi. I mean, you're probably referring to, to the, the CityWire article recently, but I, about nine months ago, I wrote a piece about on Pepsi, which was read sort of four, well, there were 400,000 impressions. And, and that was the one where I pretended I was, you know, running this massive family office and a junior analyst had said, we must buy Pepsi because it's got a return on equity of 50%. I said, fantastic. Well, how much is it? No, 200 billion. Great. Let's buy it. 230 billion. So, so we buy the whole company. I said, right, I'm doing the budget. Um, I've put Pepsi down for 110 million, 110 billion of, um, of income. And he goes, what? No, how can it be 110 billion? I said, well, but you told me it had a 50% return on equity and my equity investment's 230 billion. So, you know, 50% of that. He goes, oh, no, hang on. And you could see, you know, no one's been taught that. We've all learned the sustainable growth rate and all this other nonsense that really doesn't add up. And, and you can distort equity by buying back stock. 
and uh, and so I th- I just thought well you know it's um, people don't think about that and and yet if you talk to a property investor and you say well tell me about your your property portfolio and they say well it's yielding they don't a ten percent or whatever they don't give you the yield they give you the yield on the current market value of the portfolio not their in price and of course the Pepsi example was using you know 50% return on equity on Pepsi's original equity not what we would have to pay and so it is you're right it's it's not rocket science um but i think few people look at it that way and i think that's why so many acquisitions are a disaster because people you know, i'm talking about corporate activity one company buying another company because um because they're looking at well how good is that business is it a great business rather than the price that they've paid? If you've paid a low price and it's, and it's a bad acquisition, well, your downside's limited. But if you've paid a high price and it's a bad acquisition, it's a disaster. Yeah, absolutely right. Isn't it the case that some very well-regarded quality investors, including Charlie Munger, would have said that when you are buying into a high return on capital business, the price is less important because over time you will compound to the point that the return on your investment will match the return on invest capital of the business. I, I mean, you know, Charlie often refers to Costco and what a great business that's been. And and I think that's, you know, that's fine, but one's got to be careful. There are not that many Costcos out there. And I think, you know, there was that, that example of, well, you could have bought L'Oreal and paid 400 times earnings 30 years ago and have been fine. Yeah, well, that's if he knew L'Oreal was going to be the winner. What happens if you bet on Revlon? What happens if you bet on Avon products? You know, we got to, it's survivor bias. Be careful of survivorship bias, you know, and taking those anecdotal examples. And I think what's interesting is I think investors have confused in recent years, and this is a big factor, and I kind of alluded to it the other day, is that why have some of these quality and growth businesses done so well. They've not done so well because the operational performance has been stellar. You know, we go into, you go into any supermarket these days, you don't have to buy Quaker oats. You can buy the private label oats. You don't have to buy Doritos. You can buy Frito-Lay or whatever. You can buy, you know, the private label ones. Supermarkets got their own brands of crisps, etc. So if you look at something like Pepsi, it's only grown operating income 2.5%. But in 2012, they were yielding 4% and the bonds, 10-year bonds were yielding one and a half and they were stable businesses. And they had, they covered their dividend twice, you know, 50% payout ratio. And, and so people starved of yield, thought, well, let's go and buy ourselves some Pepsi and we won't worry about the 10-year bond. And of course, what happened, Pepsi increased dividend, many of these other companies increased dividends far greater at a far higher rate than their operating income. Such that now you have a, a situation where Pepsi's dividend yield is, what, 2.5%, and the bonds are nearly 4 And so, so a bond proxy investor would not buy that. But this has taken place during a time when huge flows have flowed into the passive market. Okay, and huge flows have gone into these kinds of funds. I mean, they've made their track record based on that. And, uh, and it doesn't make sense. It only made sense back then when the bond yields were 1.5%. And so in the fullness of time, now we're going into an interesting situation where these consumer brands are facing private label and people trading down. I mean, all the supermarkets are telling us that. So these things are going to be really challenged. So now what happens when you when earnings start falling, but your dividend cover is, you know, I mean, the payout ratio now for Pepsi, I think, is over 
So now all of a sudden it's, well, I'm paying out all my dividends and I've bought back stock. So the perception is that this is a greater business than it once was because I've depleted equity. So I think we're getting a confluence of events here. And I really think that people who've made a lot of money on those trades ought to take some chips off the table or some frito layers off the table or whatever, because it's going to be, it could be a disaster. Sean, we are coming to an end to our session and we ask all of our guests uh, a final question, which is a book recommendation. Do you have anything that you could recommend to us that you have been reading lately or that is one of your favorite, all-time favorites? Well, one of my favorites, I, um, I really enjoy James Montier. And I first came across him when he was at SockGen and he's written Value Investing. Okay, which I thought was a very good book, but if you if you don't have a long attention span and you want a good book, his book, the little book on behavioral investing, I think is excellent. And I think we must, um, you know, I find behavioral investing very interesting. I think we need to, you know, it's another arrow in our quiver. You know, we've got the numbers, we've got the story, but it was also it's the psychology of investing is very important. If you as a, us as value investors buy too early and we buy something at 100 because we think it's worth 120 and it halves to 50 and then goes back to 100, all we've done is we've got our money back but a stomach ulcer in the process. Okay, so we need to understand psychology. And I think um, James Montier's little book on behavioral investing is a great introduction to that and would, would recommend it. And hopefully one day I'll get to meet him. That's fascinating. We actually had Ben Inker from GMO as our latest guest. I heard that. I listened to it yesterday with great interest. Yeah. <laughs> I like GMO a lot. Thank you very much, uh, Sean. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. Great to chat. Very good to meet you. And thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you.